and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Sends and Suffers podcast. I am your host, Mario Stanley. Today, we're continuing our conversation with Tiffany Hainsley. So if you guys had a chance to listen to the previous episode, you got to hear about uh, Climbing Borders, all the initiatives that she does that supports organizations in the Americas. Uh, and she's currently in Colorado being a straight slayer of all the rock, rocks, of all the things that are athletic. And now we actually get to hear about that because before we were just too busy talking about things that make us all feel warm and fuzzy inside. But now let's get to the good goods. And that's why we all listen. So. Uh, thank you guys for listening. And as always, please leave comments. Let me know if you like it. Let me know if you hate it. But one way or another, I want to hear from you. That's always a good, a good lesson. Okay, cool. All right. So uh, we are back after our bathroom break. And we also learned that uh, patience with electronics is a, is a thing that we need to work on. Well, I'm gonna, maybe I'll speak for myself. <laughs> Okay, I, no, so, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So we left off talking about, um, yeah, you in Colorado, like where you are now, what you're doing now, like what is your big goals? So, um, of like what you're trying to do, you know, we've, uh, yeah. So uh, what are you doing? Yeah. What are you trying to um, send? What are you trying to rock line? <laughs> so my projects have moved from being, um, like very physically oriented to being more community oriented. So, uh, for a while, my project was Escalona for Terrace and then Climbing Without Borders. And now it's become like a bit more balanced as I get more psyched on climbing again. Um, so my projects are have really gone and transitioned more into towards Big Wall and Alpine. Um, coming from the bouldering gym and being a rock rat, a gym rat, this has been like a huge learning experience. Um but I've been really inspired by the kids that I worked with in Escalona Fronteras because they were like way out of their zone or like, you know, just kind of learning all these things at once, but then being super psyched to go and do a volcano. Um, and I at first had been like, no, I'm a rock climber. I sport climb. Um, but then I was like, okay, well, I guess let's go do this volcano. And then that got me in that direction. So well, one of my goals right now mm-hmm. is the Longspeak Triathlon. I don't know if you've heard about that. No, it's not, I don't know about it, but it sounds terrible. It's yeah, it's not an official triathlon. Um, but as I've done more trad climbing in the past five years, uh, I learned about this Long's Peak Tri that is in Colorado. It starts in Boulder, in Boulder County, like at the sign that says Boulder County Limit. Uh-huh. Bike, and then you bike 38 miles up to the trailhead of Long's Peak, and Long's Peak is one of the most um, one of the closest 14ers to Boulder, so it's very popular. Even though it's yep. a sufferfest, it's uh, it's seven miles to hike to the top, and then um, in the last mile is like third, fourth class, a little bit of fit, like a, a one move of fifth class, um, but. So the Longspeak Tri does the biking up to the trailhead, hiking up to the base of the diamond, not following the route to the top, uh, just on second class, third class, fourth class, but it goes to the base of the diamond, which is a really iconic um, granite face facing east on Longspeak, and the top of it is the summit. You've got like a little bit of fourth class, but essentially... Doing that hike, doing the bike ride, doing the hike, and then climbing 
2,000 feet to the summit, which finishes around 14,000 feet. So, oh wow! So this is a big monster. This sounds exciting. <laughs> it's it's it, for people who are like uh, not thinking about doing it. It sounds pretty exciting for people who are like, oh, maybe I want to do that. It's like intimidating. No, I mean it sounds like an absolute utter sufferfest, and you're gonna hate all of life through the whole process. But yeah, no, no. It's but the, the send goal. is gonna be worth it. It's, it's, it's all about how you go about doing it. Like from the get go without doing endurance stuff, you think this is a suffer fest, but, uh, the cool thing is that your body at like hour five or like whatever, at some point in a really long day of, uh, or a couple hours of sustained activity, your body releases these chemicals um, it's, I've been learning about this from like psychology and human performance, but it, it gives you that like second wind or third wind, fourth wind, and it suppresses, you know, inflammation, fear, um, pain, those kinds of things and creates more endorphins. And you like, as long as you're fueling yourself with electrolytes and, you know, try to put back in what you're losing, you you get to a point where like you'll feel pretty tired but you don't stop you just slow down you keep moving and then you feel really good again and so like at the end of this whole big day like what i've been discovering from like big walls and like alpinism and like doing 25 pitches and then having to bivouac is your body just keeps going and keeps going keeps going you feel great like for the most part as long as you're taking care of yourself so so yeah, so it sounds like an utter suffer fest. And there are moments when you're like, oh, I don't know, like my ankle is flaring up. But Have you heard of Horseshoe Hell, the 24 hours of Horseshoe oh Hell? Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah, so yeah I actually, it's the same thing. Like there's a moment exactly. and I think it's always at like 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. Exactly. in the morning, right? When the sun is coming back up again. Like yeah. you just get this drive and you're just like, in my mind, it was like just going super saiyan for like, for like a split second. You're like, Aah! and then you just, climbing your freaking butt off and you know and then there's the inevitable audible like just crash after you know you're the, you've reached a full 24 hour mark um right but yeah but hey rando yeah. question just throwing this out there but uh i think i already told you i'm coming into town soon i've been wanting to do the diamond forever and at this point in time, like, I, and okay. to everyone out there listening to this, yes, who I've talked about doing the diamond with, I'm so sorry, but I care more <laughs> about just rock climbing than I do care about just climbing with you. I love you. I think you're a great person, <laughs> but I want to rock climb more than I just want to be around people. Uh, yeah. So if, if you want to run up that thing, I will happily be, uh, I will happily follow all the way because I, you know, I have not done it. I'm that not going to pretend be, that I am in yeah. alpine shape, but I am well in enough shape to, you know, to follow clip bolts and, you know, throw down. So just throw yeah. that out there. I got to say, it is super cool. I do like that the route, the casual route that the long speak tri goes up is super amazing. It's like 510. And I don't think you'd have a problem on it, like physically, like doing the moves. Uh, I will say... The, the biggest issue with it is the altitude gain that you're getting. So that Yeah, I'm aware of that. And yeah. I, I, I've had enough experience at altitude to kind of know how I feel and my body goes. Uh, and I know what kind of preparations I need to do in order to, like, be ready for that when I get here. But, like, my big thing is, is, like, long as we do, like, uh, an alpine, a true alpine start 
at the trailhead and give me enough time to acclimate. Cause like, you know, and I say this to my clients actually all the time when like they're, when I'm coaching them, cause like when I meet someone to do private lessons or training with them, I always, I'm like, what's your goal? What are you trying to do? And they tell me yeah. these like big ambitions. And if it's something Alpine related, I always tell people, I'm like, okay, if you have already decided to do this big giant Alpine climb, we're going to work on like 40%, four, depending on who you are, 40 to 60% of your training is going to be just focused on the climb, you know? And if you're like a solid climber, 40% smaller, what I'm going to train you to do is do the hike. Cause that's where I see people just freaking die yeah, all exactly. the time. Yeah, yeah. And you know, and like you get up there, you don't get an early, and I know myself. So like, you know, me wanting to start, hit the trailhead at like, you know, four in the morning or, or, you know, it's reasonable because I just know I'm going to be huffing and puffing. Uh, but I'm down for that. And so, yeah, but it's one thing I always think people underestimate, like train for the hike, the climb. If you've already decided you want to do the climb, you're probably able to send it and it might just be mental, uh, unless <laughs> yeah. it's like some nails, hard sport climb, then that's a different story. But yeah, I, that's where I see 90% of people just fail. Actually. Yeah. That's, that's funny because I, I've been climbing for so long. I'm not worried about the climbing. I always get super shut down by the hiking like especially even up to last year i so since COVID's shut everything down i effectively didn't climb for three months and i was just focused on the hiking and skiing like getting my legs strong so, yeah. so i was like training for this thing that like if you're not a climber you think that's the most technical part that's the hardest part yeah, but, yeah so. but yeah you get up to like you just do the first five miles to the base of the glacier and if you're not eating enough and you haven't trained, it's it's impossible. You're just you're already yeah. Dying. You're just ready yeah. to die. Yeah. So yeah. But just keep that in mind. I am, I am in like you know I'm doing my own training program. But if you're like down to do it, I'm gonna switch my game up so to make sure my legs are ready. Uh, but yeah, just throwing it out there. I haven't done it, and I'm happy to follow or or do anything on that wall well within reason. So yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So let's let's I mean, let's do that. Yeah. So, so when are you planning to actually do this uh, full out crazy suffer fest? It totally depends on the weather because it has to be uh, good conditions. We don't want lightning storms in the evening. Um, if True. it's yep, yep, super yep, hot. Bad. Yeah. And, and then if it's like super, super hot, it can be bad because it's melting the permafrost and the rock. So just shooting down this approach goalie that gets you to the start of the route. So I was talking to Bryn, this woman I just met who was who tried to do it last year, two years ago, and they did all the biking, got up to the base, and it was just raining rocks, and they just decided not to go up, and that is totally understandable because that, aside from the lightning, that is the most um, dangerous part of it. So I, I've been watching the weather. Uh, I have work. I've been essentially. So what are the primo temps? If someone's going to do this, like what is the primo temps window that you're looking for? I mean, depending on when you go up, like you mentioned people like starting at 4 a.m. and going up there. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's just for me because I'm you know old and fat. So that's just me. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I was going to say start. It's almost good to start even earlier, like the night before. Some people have Ooh, started at this. like, some people have done that and then you climb throughout the night. If you know the route really well um, and you're assigned climbing or, or blowing up and you're just okay with going a little bit slower in the beginning um, and then, you know, being on the route by sunrise, 
5 a.m., then that is like then it doesn't really matter as much as long as it's not too cold. Um, you can also go up the night before. This is what I've done. You just bivy at the base, and then there's no hiking. Uh, if you're not acclimatized, then you are spending more time at altitude, and you might have a harder time hydrating and kind of staying mentally clear by the next day and taking off. But for me, that's actually been the nicest that you get everything done like right at sunrise. You're you're starting up the approach, um, and I mean, as long as you're getting up there when it's not too cold, not too hot, like between uh, 50 degrees and and 60, it's it's okay, I think. Especially if it's like kind of cloudy and the sun's not hitting things and making things melt off, then that's prime. Okay, okay, yeah. good to know. So, like, if you're gonna do this enduro bash. So you basically, do you have to do the ride, the ride, the hike and the climb all in one single push? Right. <laughs> um, that's the, yeah, that's the kicker is that you're essentially trying to do it um, without stopping. I mean, there are people who do it and I'm, I'm pretty sure you benefit from taking a 10 minute nap somewhere along the way. I mean, that's uh, I just will. like, yeah, I mean, yeah. Naps, are, <laughs> naps are worth their weight in gold. Yeah. Why not? I'm, I'm just training so that I can essentially do it. Uh, the fastest and most efficient and most comfortably possible because because it's like you can do it if you just grind it out and take a long time and you're lucky with the weather and some people have done it in like over 24 hours and it just sounds miserable like you get to a point where you just really want to fall asleep but then you get back and you have to go to work and um and if, if it is doable in a shorter amount of time, then essentially you're just less worn down um, and more mentally clear if you're, you know, not just grinding it out. Um, so, yeah. yeah, it's the, the goal is to do it in one day without stopping. And I've done the first section, the biking and the hiking to the base uh, without too much training. And I was like, okay, cool. And I've done the route itself twice. And so combining it, the hardest thing is actually to have a weather window that coincides with a partner and I cannot for the life <laughs> says find every a climber on every climbing trip. <laughs> yeah, but essentially, especially for this one, nobody. I, I I'm like, hey, what about this Sufferfest? You know, and I'm like, yeah, it's like 38 miles biking uphill, gaining 5,000 feet of elevation in the beginning, and then you know, and nobody wants to do that. And the people who do, I would do, do that, it. I'm. I know I'm saying this right now, but anyone who truly <laughs> knows me, like, like, I don't know, like. Maybe this is why people say this to me all the time that like Mario, you know, and I don't try to be reckless in any way, shape or form. And I don't consider myself reckless, but like everyone is always like, Mario, you like routes that have little skulls and crossbones or little X's on them or little signs of ambulances. And it's not because I want to put (laughs) myself in danger or put myself at risk. But in all reality, I like being put in a situation where like you really only have one option. You need to pony up and do what you need to do. Now, granted, you know, you shouldn't go into anything without creating some form of an exit strategy within every phase that you go into. Uh, you know, I think you're just. Oh, yeah. I mean, if, if you're if you're really wanting to get into big walls, that. Alpine, and you really want to be someone who like hits big things, not putting exit strategies into each and into every phase of what you're doing and knowing the point of no return is just stupid. Like, it, I think it's bad yes. planning. And I think you're just you're a rookie. So. If anyone's yes. listening to this, who's like thinking about planning like these big epic trips, you know, does not this not this try or anything like that, like put the same amount of time 
you put into like planning the trip, you need to put into figuring out how to get off the mountain. The point is, is I do like sufferfesses. Feel free to be like, hey, I think this is going to work. Would you be interested in slightly dying? And <laughs> the answer is yes, I would. You know, okay. I'll be honest and let you know where I'm at. But, you know, I know, I know I'm coming from sea level. So I know. And that that would be like I'm down to try to do that. And I would just know because of acclimatization that we would probably fail at the base of the climb or at the, the table ledge where the route starts. And that's totally fine. It's still training. Uh, you know, it's just it's all about seeing how you feel and keeping like hydrating well. Uh, eating enough calories, which is really hard, and just knowing when it's time to stop. Like, oh, absolutely. And, and yeah. then what you said about having an exit strategy, I wish you had told me that two weeks ago. <laughs> I have made so many <laughs> stupid mistakes. I continue to make them. Um, but I, so if we want to talk about like our latest misadventures, I did just have one. And it uh, well, was. Well, this is Sends and Suffers. So the goal <laughs> is to talk about like the highs. And we've been definitely going on a ride on that one. So, yeah. yeah what did you learn from your suffer and what was it? Yeah. We, so it was a lot of rookie mistakes. I will admit that. And that's the biggest thing about learning and being a better athlete. And I admit that I don't have as much alpine experience as a lot of the people that I climb with. So, so two weeks ago, was it two weeks ago? About then. Uh, right before 4th of July, this coworker who is absolutely awesome, Keith O'Laire, uh, I hope he's okay with me mentioning his name, uh, but I work with him at the Sports Recycler, and we're all kind of like really into the outdoors, which is why we work for minimum wage there, and we get all this cool gear, and he, he actually suggested doing this thing called the Autobahn Arapaho Traverse that's in the Rockies close to Boulder. I've heard of and this before. Have you? I had not yeah, heard of it. Yeah, I, I, I definitely, I can't, I don't know, it's not from someone in Dallas that I've heard this before, but I've heard people in Colorado talk about this before, I think. Oh, okay. I, I've heard of I, it more. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing. I actually did not know about it because I, I'm always like, got traverses, that's like walking, like how... How interesting is that? That's not that technical. Yeah, no, I'm definitely, I, I'm I with you on that. that. I find them boring sometimes, but I've definitely gotten on <laughs> no, some no. like sport climb traverses where I'm like, oh, this is hard. This is a little weird. Well, I, I don't think it's boring anymore. I always like, I just never have that experience that I over- underestimate it. Um, it's it just like, like a friend wanted me to go up the South Bay with him the other, the other month or so. And I was like, oh, five seven, like how or five nine, like how interesting is that? And then you get thrown into like these crazy chimneys with no protection and you're just like fearing for your life and hauling up hundreds of pounds. And then it's like, wow. Oh my god, that, yes. That yes. was not yes. <laughs> why did the topo say five seven and nothing else? Like you're just like looking yes. around, like Give me more where did of I find? <laughs> so I'll, I'll do the traverse first and I'll talk about that because I've learned so much from this. And every time I'm in those adventures, I think about the kids in Escalante Fronteras and how like their mentality of just like sticking through it. I'll be like, okay, Tiffany, like toughen up. Like, oh, so would be enjoying this. So, so, okay. So we heard, I heard about the Autobahn Traverse from Keith and I did not put that much time into it. And then afterwards, like what you said, you have to look into exit strategies and I've learned more about approaches, logistics, what you bring, you know, the whole shebang. And then, and then I, I kind of underestimated, of course, like the figuring out the whole of it, you know, like really going into the root finding because that's a big part, especially oh, yeah. if, if you get into class four, 
there's a lot of class four terrain. And if you're a good climber, you look at something, you think, well, shoot, I could go up left or I could go right. Like it doesn't look that, I don't know what to do though. You spend some time. It's funny you bring that up. It's actually real funny you bring that up because I always tell people like the hard lines are the obvious lines. Like the harder the line, the more obvious it is like where you have to go. But on Mm -hmm. big giant routes, you know, the easier routes I definitely oh have gotten lost so many times because of that sheer thing. You're like, I can right. I can go whatever way I freaking want to. This is all easy, but it's not how it works in any way, shape, yeah. or form. Yeah, and the more experience you get, the more you can kind of read if it's chossy or if it has rock wear, which is pretty cool. But yeah, one of the easiest climbs I've done, We it's so easy to get off route, and then it's dangerous because you have loose rocks. And you're like, how the hell do I build an anchor with this big flake. Like, I can't do that. Like, I got to reverse. I got to figure something out. And you get into trouble. So, yeah. So, we, I was looking at this traverse. And um, I, I basically did what I would do for a single pitch. Pulled it up on Mountain Project. Was looking at, like, the basic steps. Okay, class two, class three, some class four, some class five. Oh, it can't be that hard. You know, it's like you follow the ridge, right? So, yeah. Uh, we set off from Audubon, um, and we we were definitely underprepared in some ways. Like he, uh, Keith Keith gets out of his car. We've we've taken like the same car up there. He's got like a one liter Camelback. He has shorts and a tarp poncho. He doesn't have like a full on jacket. Um, he, he's got he doesn't even have sunglasses. He's got like a little bit of water. I asked him how much food he has. He's like, 700 calories. And I was like, stunned. And he'll be laughing at this when he hears this. But I was, in my mind, of course, I'm like, wow, he's such a hard man. That's so cool. Like, I brought so much stuff. Why did I bring all this? You know, he's, that's awesome. And I I still see that going as like Keith being this super courageous person and an amazing partner. And we both learned later that that was like, definitely a hard brookie mistake (laughs) i mean we realized it as we were on the hike but so we set off and the to explain the traverse it's a supposed to be a 17 mile um traverse across the rockies from the north from mount audubon down to arapaho peaks hitting a bunch of peaks along the way uh, and they're almost all of them thirteen thousand feet tall so you you essentially gain uh, like the 3,000 feet of elevation, 4,000 feet, something like that, to get to Audubon, maybe more than that, <clears throat> to the peak, and then you're going up and down along this ridge, right? So yeah, we start off really great. We hit the peak of Audubon two hours, and I'm thinking like, you know, that's pretty good for me. There's a lot of people in Boulder who could like sprint up that shit and just, you know, knock it out. Um but I was just happy with that. And we make our way across to Mount Toll. And this is where it starts to get spicy. There's like a 5-4 section of granite that you climb above this class 4 uh, of like ledges and stuff and granite. So essentially it's like a death zone. Like if, you, if he fell um, on this... Five four weird kind of crack thing, which has like it has a piton, legit like a piton hammered up in the top of it for people who were climbing it back in the day with like hobnail boots or whatever. Um, he's so like if he had fallen above me, he would have hit me on the small ledge, and if he hadn't stayed on the ledge, he would have bounced off and died for sure. And I'm like, 
in in this moment, I'm like so happy that I've tried climbed and I hadn't tried this traverse before. And knowing that backtracking the exit strategy would be not impossible, but hair raising. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would agree. Right? Like going back down fourth, fifth class of like stuff that we were, you know, not too confident on, like we were confident in our climbing skills. Uh, I will say that I've climbed. It's 13. just not something you wanted to do. <clears throat> no, you don't want to. It's, it's like, you can't, we know that we can't do it. We didn't do anything uh, that we didn't think we could do in reverse, which is super important. And it was far below our climbing ability. Like we, he climbs like V8, V9, maybe harder. And I've, I've climbed V10 and 13B and like up to 12, uh, well, rope soloing, but like uh, top rope on trad climbs, like crack climbing. So this 5.4 is like nothing. It should be nothing. But when you add exposure on oh, yeah. at 14,000, 13,000 feet, you are, you that know. That shit gets real, real fast. Have, like yeah. it's like, oh, I agree with you. Have you heard of, have you ever climbed the Mount Whitney in Lone Pine, California? No, but uh, one of our board members has told me about it and it's like. Yeah, so one of the 50 top classics, I've done Mount Whitney, the East Face, and there's this open air traverse. And the whole thing is no harder than five seven, you know. And this is a whole other story oh, wow. in five itself. Seven. Actually, I got to get some people on for another show for that. But yeah, this but is a whole other. Five seven, five seven yeah. is like serious. <laughs> yeah, and so this is like you hike up to the base of it, and you hike basically, like you drive up to this mountain, and but then I think I forget how much it is, but from the parking lot, you basically hike up to the base of thirteen thousand feet. And I want to say, once you have to get to a couple of lakes, I want to say you end up doing a total of like. Uh, someone's going to correct me and tell me I'm wrong here, but I think you do a total of like 10,000 feet or 9,000 feet from like parking lot to get to the base of 13,000 feet. And some people do this whole thing in a day, but there is an open air traverse and it says open air traverse five, seven, really it's super easy. You can do it in approaches. You know, if you look oh down, gosh, it is a sheer that. thousand foot drop and yeah, I will never, never, never for- trust it. <laughs> I will never forget just like going out. I'm like, oh, this is not bad. This is good. This is great. You know? And I'm like, and I look down and I'm like, you know, and I wasn't scared per se, but I was like, oh, this is a no screw up zone. This is absolutely no screw up because if you fall doing this traverse, the way the traverse is set up, it's not really a good setup for people who are belaying you in the back to be able to like haul you up. It's just, it really isn't set up for that. Like, you know, because I can't remember if you go up in traverse or you have to go over a block and then come back down and go over. But like you're traversing and the people who are belaying you can't see you. You're blind out there. So you traverse all the way over to a crack and then you start climbing straight up. And I will never forget that moment where, you know, the exit strategy was the same thing. I was like, I basically realized like the moment I start going up this vertical crack, like I cannot go down. Like the the point of return is gone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's like a lot of sayings around that kind of experience, right? Like you can be maybe the best way is to fail upwards, you know, like the safest way to get out is to simply keep your head and keep going. Um, And then also what I think about a lot, and this is, I really want to emphasize this is that uh, people will talk very nonchalantly about these things because in their head, they had to downplay the risk to be able to manage it 
And for them, with all their experience on adventure approaches and adventure climbing, Yosemite or the Andes or whatever, they don't see it as as hard as a lot of what they've done or because they don't have a rope on. But yeah, this yeah. is where, yeah, this is where like a lot of people can get psyched on it, just like us, but worse and get themselves, be, be good enough to get into trouble, be good enough yeah. to like, like I've seen so much of this with like college kids coming into the store where we work or like people I meet who are like, they they don't think about electrolytes or eating and they've just gotten into it and they're in pretty good shape. Oh, nutrition and, is huge. Yeah, nutrition, nutrition is huge. It's like people, like I think the thing that people underestimate is proper clothing more than anything else because people right. want to be cheapskates and I have a philosophy, buy once, cry once. Like just, like just buy something nice <laughs> that will last and then you will be so happy that you never have to deal with it again. And I, I, I definitely, I definitely agree with you on that one. Yeah. Ugh. I mean, that's funny because we work in the gear store with used gear and we get like the cheapest, the, like the huge employee discount on this stuff that is nice, but beat up pretty much. We never Doesn't get matter. Anything. Still works. Yeah. It's as long still as it works. works. And then when it comes to like buying something nice, we're just like, oh my God, like I've, I paid $20 for this number six. Like I, do I really need like a nice jacket, you know, or like a good puffy? Am I, you know, can I just go without it? And then later on you're like, why did I do that? Why? Yeah. Why? No. Yeah. Clothing, there is no such thing as like when you, I forget whose quote this is. Uh, <laughs> I have it written down somewhere, but like there's no such thing as bad weather. It's just being ill-prepared yeah exactly and that's basically it yeah yeah, a a puffy weighs almost nothing compared to like the the cost benefit ratio when we look at things like puffies and helmets yeah yeah Yeah. like my my yeah my sbi instructor um steve levin who wrote the eldorado canyon guidebook he he told me about that was like look it weighs nothing and in that situation where you've got multiple rocks falling or you're bivying out on a shelf like it weighed nothing and you didn't take it with you. So, <laughs> so actually this is what, so this is what we did on the traverse was, uh, and I had made this mistake before. Keith didn't have anything else uh, besides a regulator on his body and shorts and his parch- poncho tarp, which was, it was so epic looking. It was, he looked like he came out of Zelda and <laughs> it was amazing. I can send you a photo. Awesome. Please do. Please uh, do. Oh, that yeah. that's the cover. It's it was uh like I was like so envious. And I've got my like I had my soft shell pants and um and my let's see, like I had a waterproof jacket and then my puffy um and my you know big old sunglasses. So I felt over prepared. And but later on, as we're moving, he, there's like some wind. Of course, there's wind up there on their crest, and he was like, "Shit, I'm so cold!" Like <laughs> it was like our hands were going numb, and uh, he would like take a break on the, the non-windy side while I'm finishing up the five four, and we get to the top, and we're like, "Wow, we we were almost freezing on the five four. Like that sucked." <laughs> um, so yeah, so as we continued the traverse, we managed to get off route only a couple times um but because of our climbing ability we we're able to like kind of cut across some stuff and like off with this bergschrund um and we started moving pretty slow and we had we were like probably not eating enough which i mean it's the same story over again um 
I did make sure to bring way more food than I normally do. And I'm getting better at that. I had like 3000 calories on me. Uh, I was drinking from my bladder all the time. Um, but at some point, like more than halfway through our mental clarity was not totally there. Like we were also depending on our phones. We didn't have a printed map, which is like a huge mistake. Um, he had been studying the route pretty extensively online and different um, trip reports. And then I was <clears throat> kind of like using my experience from just having to navigate on in the Alps and in the Andes and uh, kind of interpret, interpret what like a steep goalie would be. Or did we go up third class and, you know, take the ray, like follow the crest. And between the two of us, we made a lot of mistakes, but we were able to kind of keep our game and keep going. And then ultimately we get to the end, what, what we thought was the end. Neither of us had, had done or really studied the Arapaho peaks at the finish. And they're the highest ones. Um, and it's starting to get dark. And we actually celebrated on top of this peak that we... For the moment, because we were just a little too tired and we've been going for 12 hours, um, we thought it was Arapaho Peak and it wasn't. In fact, it's a peak you're not even supposed to really get on because it's part of Watershed, which is oh. which is private property and there's no trespassing. And it was it's, a, it's in the warnings in a couple places, but we hadn't seen them. And there's there's from where we came from, there's no posted signs. So we so this gets interesting later on, but essentially we kind of celebrate and we split this like crumbly biscuit, and then we're like looking at the directions, like oh shit, you know I think we just did Doesha. I think we're no, I think we still have the last two peaks to go, and they're like the tallest ones. And there's like another like low angle class five slab coming up. Oh, that's beautiful. And, yeah, right. We're like, oh, did we want to do that in the dark? You know. Um, and we, we had so failed, like we were, we had been pretty cold sometimes. So we were probably pretty tired without even realizing it, you know, like we think we have mental clarity because we're so enthusiastic and we've got, you know, oh, yeah, well, you're running on adrenaline at that moment. Yeah. Like maybe not, it's not so much adrenaline, like adrenaline is short term. Uh, I can't, I can't remember the name of all the other chemicals, but like adrenaline will kind of get you shaky and okay. then okay. kind of crash. And this is, uh, I'm going to send it to you. It's like the most amazing hormone ever, but essentially you just keep going and going and going and you, f- and I was getting my fourth wind, like feeling pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. and we were both pretty tired, but like the morale spiked and we're like, yeah, we finished. Um, and I took this minute long video, like looking at the whole traverse and saying, we went here, we went here and now here we are. Turned off the video, looked at the directions and we're like, okay, we've got two more peaks. Uh, it says go up, like it literally just said, go up the Northeast Ridge of the next peak. And as far as like Alpine instructions, like we still had daylight, we could see everything. Oh, we just, we had not look. we didn't have enough data or signal on our phones to look at a detailed map and to see the names of the peaks. We didn't have anything printed out. So we just looked across at this ridge and we're like, that's the ridge. And we go up to the ridge and we kind of epic and we're going up to the side. Turns out it was another peak we're not supposed to be on, Arikari. 
and I don't think anybody goes up that way, but we were going up this like pretty epic kind of slab open book thing. Um, it was dirty and we just, we're just like, let's just get to the top and we'll just, you know, it's got to get us closer. And then we realized we're like way off route. Oh my that, God. Like, what time of day would, was it by now, then? So it was starting to get dark and then oh, nice, like nice, classic. And then we get hit by a snowstorm, classic. Like, it was real quick, and the, the wind was strong, so I was, like, not too worried that it would stay. I was pretty sure it would blow through. But uh, we got really cold, and I gave my rain jacket to Keith, who was, like, definitely suffering. And I had my puffy, and we're trying – my phone stops working. It's at 50%, but if it gets cold, it's like this Android. It just turns off. And we've got his phone. His phone works. And we're like, okay, so we, we weren't on the wrong peak. What were we on? We still didn't know. But we realized that to get out, this is where when you're talking about the exit strategy, I had this moment in my mind. And this was only like 10 days ago where we're like, holy shit, how did we get so turned around and not realize that if something went wrong at this point, that to go back onto the trail, we, can, we will have to do that without any more light. And we weren't sure how to <clears throat> navigate that. And it looked heinous. And the trail that we'd have to hit would go over to this other Arapaho Peak. We might have to do fifth class slab. And there's a snowstorm right now, so we're not really sure about that. And then basically go the opposite direction from the car. And it would take like another eight, ten miles to get back to the car. And so... This is where, like, exit strategy-wise, we could have looked at a map more in detail together and been like, okay, if we're here and it's really dark and we've gone kind of slow because we've gone off route and we need to get out, what are we going to do? And we were, we were keeping our heads together because we've been in this situation before. Keith has been in the winds and had, like, long days. I've okay. been... I've been stuck shiver bibbing, like, in the Alps without a puffy, which was a classic mistake. Um and having to root read. And we were just like, okay, like we've got to look for the best route out of here towards civilization. We're in the middle of the Indian Peaks wilderness, which is this really massive area in the Rockies. Um, and a lot of it's watershed. Actually, what we were in was watershed. We didn't know. And we just were like, okay, there's a couple of choices but we're just going to choose what looks like the easiest landscape. And we head out and we're walking for hours. We get to a tree line. We set up the worst bivy ever, which was like sleeping on rocks underneath this really thorny bush with branches that like were like hovering right above our bodies. So if we try to move, we'd like hit a hard branch. Um, and there was a slight wind. And of course, we're like in Alpines. It's pretty cold. And and Keith is sleeping in his rain jacket that I've given him. We've got his his tarp poncho on top of us. Um, and then we've got my emergency blanket kind of lower down around our legs. And I've got my puffy and like wool bottoms. And I'm Thank like, God, you have an emergency blanket. Those things right? are a lifesaver. I had forgotten I had it. I was like, "Why? When am I ever going to use this? What idiocy do I have to like stick myself into to get to the point they where don't I'm going to use that?" They don't make stuff for no reason. <laughs> yeah, and I pulled it out. I was like, "Oh my god, Keith, I have an emergency blanket." Uh, but he <laughs> suffered so hard. Oh, he yeah. was like, because he had shorts. He had shorts and uh, his like rain jacket and a regulator, and that was it. Uh, and 
and of course we got to the moment where we're like Keith can we spoon it's like <laughs> please and he's 23 so he's younger than me so there's a little bit of that social like awkwardness until I was like Keith I want a spoon I'm freaking cold and he's like okay yeah like <laughs> you know it's that, funny Go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. You just, just reminded me of something. It's just this moment in humanity where you feel that primal instinct to just survive. And oh, yeah. we had enough clarity in our minds. We're like, okay, let's make sure this is all right. That's all right. And do everything. But when you're shiver bivying with somebody. You don't care. And you, you, you don't care. But, and the other person, he's like, he has so much stoicism and he's such a good guy. And he wants to do the right thing. And he wants, you know, he's, he's like afraid of, you know, making anybody feel bad. And so he, he wanted to tough it out. And I was like, Keith, we got a spoon. <laughs> like that moment, that moment is just so profound and so funny and brings people together so that you go up, like kind of knowing the other person, we'd never climb together. In fact, and you come down feeling like a married couple because you've like gone through this experience and had to be so empathetically connected to think about that person in that moment. Are you okay? Are, honey, like, like, honey, are you going to roll your ankle? Are you, you know, are we that tired? Yeah. You know, did you take your, you know, those vitamins that you said you'd take and things like that. Um, but yeah, go ahead. It's just, it's just such a funny moment. Oh um, no, I was I just going to say, like, say. I've been in that moment before, like when we were on Mount Whitney, we topped out in the dark and then one of our friends, uh, uh, Kip had just, I mean, he had basically drank through and ate mm. everything, was just ill prepared <laughs> nutrition wise. Everything else was great. And we all end up spending the night in the storm shelter on the top of, the, of Mount Whitney. Oh, wow. And we end up taking our climbing rope. And I've done this before because I had actually forgotten my uh, thermores when I went to Vegas one year. And so mm -hmm. I, I laid out my 70 meter rope in a very small, like little grid, like just looping it back and forth and turned it into a, a thermores, like a barrier between oh, yeah. me and the ground. Uh, so and effective. so we did the same thing with our ropes, but we kept on throughout the night. We rotated who was on the outside. So right. there was four yeah. of us. So two people would sleep on the outside and then like every hour or something, those people would move on the inside. And then we just kept on rotating through the night. And that's the only way we all stayed warm. And I think Kit basically stayed, it, Kip stayed in the middle the whole night because he was just in a bad way. But like, uh, I, and also it's funny. It's like, I got I, like when on these big walls, I get into like full ration mode. I will start rationing water rationing food especially if i like I, I sense that like something's going wrong i like just go into this like primal mode and i don't know what it is but it always happens and right uh it, that, that, but yeah i i definitely understand i've been there i think that's uh that's an epic yeah yeah it's an epic it's interesting like we 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 should be doing everything that we can to avoid getting to that spot and we do and then when you get into that, like something happens where, like you said, there's a primal mode where what, sh what would normally be a horrific experience becomes a manageable one. And you can even enjoy it to a certain extent by like staying very emotionally positive and yeah. working, working like with the group to keep the morale up. Um, like I think doing laughter those, is key yeah. at that point. Like you have to be able to laughter. laugh at the situation and just yeah. look back at it and just be like, this is the dumbest thing ever. And if you can't chuckle at it, 
I think that's a that's a genuine concern, either in the moment or looking at it, you know, past tense. Oh my gosh, yes. I mean that that like overlays with like Buddhism. I don't know if you've heard of Pema Chodron, this no. Buddhist. She talks about how like the dark side of things, the the reality or like our ego or overcoming, you know, into challenging territory, the laughter is the the way of making it light. And so I think about that all the time. And that's exactly how, like, if there's any emergency, like you take it seriously and you go into just go mode and like at a certain point, you're so tired, you can't um, really like summon the energy to do that. But that's something that I also learned like really early on with the kids in Escalon and Fronteras because we went to go do this volcano, Isashiwat, which goes up to 18,000 feet. And that's pretty tall. And they were coming from ground level. They essentially, because of poor planning and some unexpected issues, we didn't get as much time to climatize. Like we lost a night. We we're supposed to, to be sleeping in the, in the refuge at 11,000 feet. Mm-hmm. And these kids... They had they had done it a couple times. The first time it was super hard, and they were just like puking, uh, essentially. And they had a amazing experience, but they had a better experience when they came back with a guide who gave them more time. And they had been training as well locally. Uh, I took them up La Viga to twelve thousand feet. Essentially, these kids Oso um, and Peewee, his name's Asael, uh, and. And Heidi, who's the one of our female leaders of the the four, so they were going up and cracking jokes this time, and like keeping each other's spirits up, which is really amazing. Uh, like even when they were suffering, even when like they're in the documentary, if you watch it, the eighteen minute one, uh, they took GoPro footage, and there's a point where he's sitting down and thinking about his mother. And like just overwhelmed with emotion and they're at 18,000 feet and they have to keep staying at that level for like a couple more miles. Um, and, and you see, and then it flashes to like the kids, uh, I say kids, but they're like in their close to 20 or over 20. Uh, they're talking about that camaraderie and it shows them making jokes, like having a snowball fight. Um, even though you know that they're having such a hard time. And that's something that was like so crazy to me and became so important in my climbing, uh, whether I was training, if I was competing, if I was climbing with these kids, if we were doing something outside our comfort zone or on this traverse, like what we did 10 days ago, um, like keeping that morale up and having a little bit of humor is a really good marker for knowing where you're at. And when you lose that humor, you know that it's not fun. You're not going to be as effective you don't have that same clarity and it's just time to like look at going down. That's so and, true. Uh, that yeah. is very, 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 very true. Yeah. Like we, a lot of us, we have our, our flags that we look at and we, when we don't know what we're going into, we put our flags very low, very, very low, essentially like I got to be vomiting before I got to go down. And that's not true. It's like we, we should have this standard where we feel good where we're eating enough and we're not starving ourselves because of our image, body image, because of social roles, uh, where we're hydrating because we've kind of acknowledged the need to have electrolytes. Um, and where when we, when I feel less creative, when I can't come up with jokes, I see that as a red flag. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think yeah, yeah, you can't not communicate at that point. Yeah. You have to have signs, uh, just like you're saying, you have to have signs that are allow you to be like, all right, sh- you know, shit's not going the way it should be right now. Yeah. Because a lot of it's not communicated. And that's when mm-hmm. I saw Keith, like I could ask him how he is and he'll say fine every time because he wants to keep morale up. And then when I saw him like shivering or just something in his mannerisms would tell me that like, okay, he's, he's doing pretty bad. Um, and knowing myself, I'm not going to be like, Oh, I feel like total shit all the time. <laughs> you know, I'll be like, I'll let it pass. And I'll later on be like, Hey, I, I didn't feel so good. You know, I mean, I need, need some more food of water. Um, that's that. Yeah. Those red flags are so important to look at. And I, I gotta be honest in the U S we don't talk about these psychological tales. We don't, talk as much about mentality but when you i i will say there's a couple of really good books uh like extreme alpinism by mark twight james martin or uh there's a book conquerors of the useless by Lionel terre that i mean the more you go into alpinism in those big days the more they talk about the psychological aspect and where your head is and how important it is to have confidence uh, or if you don't have confidence to be addressing those red flags with those warning signs. And and there's something really interesting that Gaston Rebuffat said. He's a French alpinist that's really famous for putting up a lot of first ascents in the Alps and in around Chamonix and elsewhere, like the Andes and Himalayas. He said that, I'm going to paraphrase, like, if you're a technically good climber, that can get you anywhere. But the most important thing, what will bring you back alive is your courage and your judgment. Like yeah, that. That's deep. I would agree yeah. with that. You know, I think one thing too, yeah. you know, you're kind of hitting the nail on the head is, and I know for me, you know, um, I don't really have a choice because I have to be sometimes like a little bit more, I mean, what you can call it vulnerable, but set a level of communication because I'm hearing impaired. I wear hearing aids. So like, like when I talk, climb with people, I'm always like, all right, look, I need to create a tug system. So you understand, like when I can't hear when you're when we're switching off the belay, if I can't hear you, we still yell. But the tugs have to happen. And I think what happens yeah. is, is like people don't set a level of communication, you know, because everyone else like I think this is like a version of send fever, you know, send fever traditionally is where someone like just wants to get to the top no matter what. And it's something that a guide is dealing with. But I think, oh, yeah. you know, you're right. Everybody doesn't want to fail it, No one wants to be like be the person to turn the whole group around. And that's kind of be it's got a, it's a hard person to be and no one wants to do it. But it is like this kind of communal send fever. But if you don't, you know, my experience, if you don't like really set up an open level of communication of like, Hey, you know, like just got to do a check-in like, you know, but no one wants to be that person. And I think that's the hard part. And you're like, you know, yeah. we're in America, everyone's like, you know, you got to send, you got to win. You have to get an A plus. It has to be a hundred percent. It has to be this. And you know, I, doesn't have to be perfect just has to get done and sometimes it's not going to get done today and i think being able to have that kind of open dialogue with someone is key i think the thing is is you have to set that up in the very beginning like the moment you get out of the car at the trailhead you know maybe even the day before have that conversation when you're talking about it and prepping uh i know i always have to 
because like my friends personally know like the more nonchalant I am about a climb, I'm like, oh, it's going to be easy. It would be great. We're gonna go the more epic it's probably going to be. And then I'll, but, <laughs> yeah. but I won't have that conversation with them until we're at the base of the crag. And I'm like, well, we're here. So we're just going to do this. So uh, let's have fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, apprehensiveness and anxiety, uh, like the, the apprehension that can come with doing something can really affect the performance. And so having oh, yeah. the nonchalant attitude is great, but then also having the communication, it, it'll feel like in the moment, like it's too much or like why or really being redundant here. Like, why are we going over this again? Um, but later on, being so redundant in the safety really sets you up for a big margin of error and having, and I used to not be psyched on climbing groups because I thought it would kind of move too slow or I don't know what, but I had a really interesting experience in the Grand Capusan with three other women where we communicate, like we each spoke a different language, like Spanish. One was from Czech. One was from France and I was from the US and and we're speaking French, Spanish and English kind of all together, but we were really open about our communication. And that was really mind blowing. Like having yeah, well, you you were forced to be at that point and you saw the effectiveness of it. Yeah, cuz it's pretty committing, especially for myself, it was the first time I was crossing crevasses to get to this place in the Alps with these other girls. Like we, there was a point where one of the girls had a headache and they kind of felt sick. And and because we addressed that and we kind of slept in and took a rest day and figured out like the beginning pitches and came back down, um, we avoided a, what could have been like the, the post-mortem decision by using a pre-mortem decision. I, I don't know if you've heard about like the pre-mortem decision being that moment when you're like, hey, if we continue, it can get really bad. So let's yeah, weigh our I options. Mean, I always call that the gut check. Like the gut check, yeah. Yeah, like, well, I mean, so I say this to the kids when I'm coaching them all the time. I'm like, you know, my goal as a coach is to just teach you how to move and teach you the understanding and the thought process, the thought maps that you're supposed to have when you're making these decisions. But when you're doing these moves, there's only two communications you're going to get from your body. One is from your gut, and your gut is going to tell you, like, hey, if you do this, you're going to get hurt. And then one is from your head and is saying, hey, if you do this, you probably can get hurt. But this is more scary than it is hard. So I don't want to do it. And right. I always and like for me as a coach, like the hardest thing is teaching kids to distinguish the voice between their head and their gut. Because when you're an adult and you get a little bit more life experience, we all know that feeling when your gut is like, this is a bad idea. And you're like, always trust your gut, because the way I like to say it, you know, part of my French here, but. Your gut never wants to get fucked up. If you get fucked up, your gut gets fucked up. So like it, it will warn you. It will warn you like, this is not a good idea. And you should follow that. But then, you know, with your head getting in the way is where it's like, it's not your gut talking. It is your head because the move is just scary. And yeah. the whole, the sensory overload from the whole thing. And that's why I talk to kids all the time. Cause I'm, I'm asking them, I'm like, did you try or did you let go? And you know, and they're like, nah, I tried. I'm like, no, you didn't. You let go. There's a difference. And just getting them to identify that, you know, and understand which voice is talking to them is hard. And I think, you know, this is kind of what we're talking about here too. It's the same thing. It's just, you've got to have that moment, but I've never heard it said in that, post-mortem, pre-mortem text before. I like that, actually. It's pretty cool. 
I got it from the, I think the AMGA uh, recommended guidebook, the Mountain Guide. Oh, nice. Uh, manual, something like that. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, I'm studying to be a, a rock guide eventually because I, I really want to have that experience myself, but also to work with kids right. and, and women and individuals. That is a bucket list of mine, too. I have not been able, living in Dallas, obviously, it's like super hard, but that is honestly my uh my bucket list has always been to get my alpine cert like i don't really want to like ifmga is great you know and i'm not saying i wouldn't do it uh but by the time you become a rock guide or an alpine guide i mean you might as well have paid for a bachelor's degree in rock climbing it's pretty freaking expensive oh yeah people don't realize it it's like the class is expensive but like i always tell people it's like it's not the class like if i could do the class and it covered room and board lodging transportation everything you know that goes into it it wouldn't be that bad but it's like especially if you have to travel your travel costs and lodging and everything you need could be just as much as your class I will take this opportunity to mention that they have scholarships for, uh, um, what is it? Black, indigenous people of color, as well as uh, LGBTQ2A plus, and for women. Like, I just signed up for a scholarship that I didn't get, but I'm not too upset about that. Um, For an all-woman guide course, RGC, that's in Boulder in September. And I was like, dude, the AMGA, you're so cool. Like they're doing, they're like geotagging the local territories for the climbing areas that are in their photos and trying to be more inclusive and working with brown girls uh, climbing and uh, brothers of climbing, those kinds of things. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. So I just wanted to throw that out there for anybody who's listening. Like there are scholarships. You don't have to pay $10,000 for the whole thing. It's, they're making it accessible. And I don't think they have enough scholarships. I'll say that. Like it's a pretty limited group compared to like, it's still so male dominated in the guide world. And I have 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. My family friends that have gone down that route are incredible women. Very strong. Jesse Lewis is one of them and she's in Buena Vista and she's like, yeah, you, you can be a guide. And I was like, shit no one's told me that before like i assumed you know being i don't know from being identifying as a woman and and just seeing men out there instructing the courses and taking the courses and taking initiative and you know bragging on their blogs about all the stuff they've done as guides i'm like shit like there's nobody like me out there but um but yeah that's changing and props to amga for doing that and those yeah i think they've done a really good job of kind of like staying with the times and actually listening to the community. And I also think like they had a hard, I know when I first got my single pitch instructor, Dave Sweet was uh, my instructor that uh, the first person I ever took my course with. And, you know, he was very clear and very, and this is one of the thing I appreciate about him. He was very clear and very straight up. He was like, we need more young people like you in this, in this thing. It's like, it's a bunch of guys my age and we all are very aware that like, the room is getting smaller and smaller and we need, you know, we need you guys to pick up the mantle and kind of run with this. And I think, you know, by far like his characteristic, cause he was like, as for a guide, he was probably the most humble and like real personal instructor that I've ever had. Like just as like a human being, like a good solid human being, because, you know, I say this all the time, Mm -hmm. rock climbing is an ego based sport and 
most people that I've had, you know, they're all, all the other instructors I've ever had, great guys, nice people. You know, um, I think most of them have a little bit of an ego and I just mm -hmm. like, I choose not to operate in that world. I try my best not to. And, you know, any of my friends or people who know me, if you, you know, if I'm ever doing that, everyone right. who knows me, knows me, you have every, you have every right to call me out on that. But, uh, he is the person who really kind of like made me feel truly, 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 genuinely welcomed to the guiding community as a guide, you know, like if it wasn't for him, I'd be honest with you, I probably would have never continued. All right. Props to Mr. Sweet. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like it takes one person to like, whether it's working with at-risk youth or being out in the mountains, it just takes one person to say, you can do this and you don't need anybody else. If there's that one person who's like, oh yeah, yeah. of course. Like that sticks in your head and it pushes you when you're out there and you're like, oh, should I do this or not? It's like, oh, you know what? No, my friend Jesse said that I could be a guide. So, you know, I'll, I'll yeah, work yeah, on that. I've got something. Yeah. Um, and then what you were saying about like it being an ego-based sport, that I think the best remedy for that is that it's also a mentorship. It should be emphasized that it's a mentorship sport. It has enough danger that you can't, it's not like basketball, you throw them the gear and put them out there, even though that was like the old school way of teaching people. And some people, it's yes, if they're, you know, prepared for that, they'll do well and they'll stay alive. But as we become a more modern and disconnected kind of society in some ways, and we're kind of, we have more access more quickly to these things. Mentorship is the way forward. Like, yeah, no, we don't, I definitely yeah. agree with you. I think it's definitely always been the way. I think, though, the big thing, too, is also is like indoor and outdoor rock climbing are two very separate things. And I think, you know, mentorship in both aspects needs to be uh done but i think also too i think the level of commitment and mentorship in the outdoor world is a lot more and i think that it is something that is dying and it is something that like people need to do and i think also it needs a little bit of reinventing like you think how it's that dying? Works to, huh i do think you, you i think honestly do i honestly do and to a certain extent i think mentorship in the outdoors is dying because you know with the excess of information due to the internet and everything else people are learning it and a lot of people just want to kind of go out there and go on their own and people just right, want to yeah. do things by themselves which you know more power to you you can do it but you know it, it's to have the appropriate step uh, to, to have really be effective outdoors and really make sure you're preserving it and doing that someone to just look over your shoulder or someone you can just have conversations with is so key. And I just don't think as many people want that. And I think it right. is an, 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 a current issue um, that is yeah. in the community as a whole. I think the big thing is, is people just, some people are like, oh, I don't want to do the work to, to like teach someone and do this. I just want to be able to go out and climb because this is my thing. This is my time, you know, and I don't want to have to do that. And I've just never been that person. I've always been like, you know, I want to make my own climbing partners. I want to train them. I want to teach them so they are effective and I have more people to climb with. It's, it's a, and you know, I'll be 100% honest. My, my climbing is completely self-interest. Like everything that I do, my job teaching people to climbing, it, climb is completely self-interest. I want to climb more. And the only way I've always found is you have to make more partners. Uh, and so that's my way of like mentoring and sending people out. But as a whole, I, I don't think it's done as much. 
Right. Ultimately, I think we're not keeping up with like the flow of people going outdoors and culturally we're not anywhere close to the the culture that's in, for example, the Alps. I've spent a couple of months out there in Chamonix the past couple of years. um, And I've seen how like getting a guide is normal. Even paying a guide to do a project where you can't find a partner for is normal. And even in Latin America, I've seen it where these guys wanted a partner to come along with them who's like guide status and they paid his flight and they're like, you're coming with us. Yeah. Like, and in America, people look at that like, well, if you're just coming along, you're my friend and you should like just yeah. or you should do this. And I'm not saying that's not the case, but, you know, people who make their career as guides, you know, I mean – it is their job. Yeah. And so it I, I, it's very, I have, I have a very few small group of clients that they are legitimately my friends, but they do understand that like, this is a part of my job. So if I'm coming along, you know, whether I'm just a rope gun or I'm actually guiding you, it's just not the U S way. Like, you know, I don't know. It kind of reminds it's, me of, yeah. uh, uh, I think it's a TI song where he talks about if you're my homeboy, you don't ever have to pay me. And I always thought that was like the coolest thing, <laughs> you know, and but it doesn't apply everywhere. Maybe, you know, may, you know, maybe for a little you know, side hustle that doesn't involve me leaving my desk, you know, writing some stuff up or doing some things for you. But in all reality, when it comes to something that big and guiding is just like guiding, like I don't think people understand, like guiding is just a lot of work. Exactly. Yeah, your your self-awareness has to expand to include everybody that you're working with. And you have to take care of yourself well enough to be able to to pick up on all those things when they're kind of not, you know, they're outside their, no, their they're, comfort no, zone. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. They're, they're there to have fun. They're there to clip bolts, pull on holds, have a field day yeah, and then go exactly. home. Yeah, they want they want <laughs> they want appetizer, entree, little thing in the middle, some dessert. And, and a little digestive to, and send them on their way. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you, I I haven't worked professionally as a guide in the U.S. to have like that level where you they kind of expect that from you. I've spent the years I was working with Escola Fraterras, I did three years working with big groups of kids. And then with like we brought in these volunteers who were students from the university and they didn't know. And then it was like every Sunday was so draining because you've got 20 kids and this is single pitch, but you've got 20 kids. You've got a couple of kids in the program who are, they know what to check for and you have to rely on them to, to be able to check all the other players. And then you've got these volunteers who like, you've just given the introduction and they're holding the lifeline for these children. Right. And that was, that is, guiding at single pitch and with a huge group and it at first was terrifying and absolutely exhausting and this is i'm going to bring this like segue this into what i really want to talk about is like those those youth programs those kids we gave them a lot of experience that i had and some other directors um including ramon narvarez and some other people who've who visited and like yourself, you offered to also give them a guide program um, to give them the basic standards that should exist. And, but they don't have anything accessible, even though they're three hours away from the U S border and like a a good overnight bus ride from, you know, Dallas um, there is no existing single pitch instructor course 
and it's rarely showing up in Mexico City, but it's been, I mean, I've been working with this program for six years. I've not been able to find them a, the SPI course that sometimes pops up um, in Latin America for them specifically. Uh, I haven't even been able to catch it in Mexico City, but if there's anybody out there who is a single pitch instructor for the AMGA who can speak Spanish or is willing to have stuff translated by myself, because I have done a lot of translating for like wilderness first aid courses to um, to guiding. I would be, be like, send me an email, uh, get a hold of me somehow, talk to Mario. Uh, we're looking for that because that's the surefire way of avoiding a disaster in the youth program. Like they've gone six years running without having a single accident. And I want to say it's because we were absolutely paranoid and really on it. Um, we've got like this first aid kit that's absolutely like overkill, but it's, you know, they know how to use it. They've had uh, all the training yeah. they can get. Better they to have, have like, and not need than yeah. the need and not have. Exactly. They've got like the first aid kit. They've had first aid, CPR. Um, they have vertical rescue, even though it's more than they need, but they don't have a single pitch instructor to give them the full course and like really dial down like modern practices and redundancy. Yeah. Um, I remember in a we, way that, yeah, I remember we were talking about doing something like this, but yeah. So if anyone is out yeah. there and you have access to this, uh, resources, uh, like, like she said, hit me, hit Tiffany up. Uh, but we'd love to do this. Cause I remember this is something I wanted to do, but I didn't have access yes. to the resources or be able to do it. And so, yeah. Yeah. Like bringing those kids up to Texas is super hard. And especially now with immigration and border oh, it's crossing not gonna happen, and, and their lack of documentation. Say. Yeah. Uh, like I might be able to do it with one of the kids, which is one of our goals um, to bring Pee Wee, who we paid for his Escalona Frontera is paid for his school and he actually graduated as a mechanical engineer. Heck um, yeah. Yeah. He's super cool. He's been with the program for four years, I think. And he's one of the four that now work where what I was doing and Ramon was doing, where they are supervising as a guide for these groups every Sunday. Um, and and yeah, like we, we wanted to get that done with you. And I remember it was like we couldn't bring them up. And, but they also didn't have, I think, maybe enough training to get there at the yeah, time. Yeah, there, there was a couple hurdles that we ran into. I know yeah. logistics of like either bringing the kids down uh, up to Texas or getting me down there with the proper certifications or someone else who could right. do it. And like, mm -hmm. and I think this is like understanding like the sheer process of like how something like this works, you know? And I know, I think the AMGA had, I, I'm pretty sure they probably have some kind of setup to do this, but I remember looking at this a while ago and I remember finding something, but it wasn't cost effective. I'm like, this is just, this is, this is way more than any one of us or all of us could afford to do. And so anybody mm -hmm. out of the kindness of your heart has an idea, you know, this is an open think tank. So throw it, yes. throw it out there. Yeah. There's a couple of SBI instructors who they told me they were interested in doing it, but they were kind of sparsed out individuals um and they didn't have an idea of how they could do it on their own and they're like yeah i'll talk to my my own instructors and kind of find somebody to speak spanish because that would be a huge Biggest portion yeah yeah and 
Yeah, so that's like that's one of the projects that I've got going with Climbing Without Borders in regards to Escalona Fronteras and youth programs in general, because in Latin America, like you can't get standard practices taught. You can't find the certifications unless you happen to be in a major city. You happen to have $700 on you to spend on this thing and the support network to kind of get you up there doing it and come back opportunities for career. It's like, it's so inaccessible, even though they have places like Huasteca, like we were talking about right at their backyard. Like, yeah. yeah. And then these, these youth this is programs, a problem we can fix. Like this yeah. is definitely a problem we can fix. So yeah. Yeah. So, and, yeah. So and go ahead. Yeah. I just, I like, the most sustainable thing long-term is to work with these youth programs in a way that they have local resources instead of like a one-off, like here's a class, we're going to translate it, throw you some gear, good luck. But kind of also integrating local organizations. um, If people knew the local Mexican kind of AMGA uh, version um, or those people who regularly do it, if we can make that network happen, then I would, it's one of my goals is to fully support those youth programs, having access to a certified course similar to SPI. And so that those youth mentors have a standard training for those nonprofit programs, because working with at-risk youth outdoors is not like working with a friend or with a client. Like you- Very different. Yeah, like kids are going to run away from the base of the wall and you have to have wilderness first aid. You have to have kind of orientation with the outdoors, prepare them and be able to talk to them in a in a professional way, but also like uh, locally on their level. So working with the locals, but having this internationally recognized standard is one of my long term goals. So it's one of many, but it's like, if we're going to end with anything, I would end with being like, okay, you know, who is out there who can help, um, bring a standard of mentorship and safety to these climbing youth programs in a way that like, if I had to pay for it, if our board members, our board members have said that they're happy to donate to that, um, donors, you know, this is something in the long run, that would be able to allow those participants, those programs to become guides. Like I, I'm talking to somebody in Peru and they're working with these youth and they're like, how do we, how can we get them to become guides if you know, we've got local climbers and local guides, but there's no standard and we need that standard to work with I these I think this is an easy groups. thing we can fix. And, you know, I think, you know, listening to you, I think what needs to happen is, is like one, you know, I'm sure there's something that exists between the AMGA and all the governing bodies out there. But if not, you know, what I want to invite is if anybody's interested to help, like, let's just get on a video call and just have a couple think tank sessions. Because I think really right. also, too, it's like outside of that, figuring out a way to fund and make this thing sustainable so you can get kids to grow up, become members of society and put back into this program. And, right. you know. I think Continue is key. The so like this is a, this yeah. is an ongoing conversation. Yes, because they have the resources of, you know, they have two arms. They can help themselves. Like we we don't need to be looking down at 
people overseas, this is something I learned from like international aid from France was that we commonly have this idea of like, okay, I'm going to go in and help out because I've got two arms and a big wallet, but they can help themselves. They've got the resources. They just don't have, you know, that resource that all of us need, which is like an international standard, you know, or like there's the gear that is so expensive to import or the first aid kit that is complete and has what you need that you can't get anywhere in their city. And it's just like, that's something we can share. We don't have to like give it to them or feel like we're higher up in some way, but to recognize their potential and encourage them when they have that initiative. And it's been so meaningful and so fulfilling that I oftentimes will put my own climbing aside to say like, hey, what do you want to do? Like, do you want to go try to do a first ascent or big wall? Do you want to do multi-pitch? Do you want to apply for a course? Whatever you want to do, I will follow you. And it's been just amazing. Like I've met so many cool people, so many other athletes who are activists as well. Um, like athletes who like, I got a, I got a shout out to them. Like Sibe Van He is from Belgium. And I know American climbers don't know European or other athletes as much, but he's like, he literally studied social work in university and is also this badass big wall climber who's climbed with like Shauna Driscoll and the Fabrest brothers who did like, you know, Dota's delight and was in real rock and everything. Um, and he actually came and visited the program in Mexico. Like he flew down, spent some time with them and they know him personally and they send him messages. They're like, Hey dude, what's up? And he's, he's planning to do, if COVID allows it, he's planning to do a big wall, like first ascent with them. Um, hopefully with you know some backing or however we make it happen but uh like the people are like yourself like you went down and you worked with this program and you saw how the kids were super enthusiastic and you supported them and like connecting with people like yourself and Bay, um working with climbing with people like ethan pringle has really showed me that those athletes really support what's happening and climbing without borders and the Mexican program, Escalona Fronteras. And that this isn't something that is like, oh, it's kind of cool, but you know, it's unsexy because it's not profit. It's like, no, there, this is amazing. This is like really emotional. This, the stories they have of like kids that we work with that, their mother's a prostitute and they've they've moved into an orphanage. They're still climbing with us. Like those stories are so like rich and incredible. And I'm really excited to to you know continue working on this with you, with you know, whoever's listening who wants to be a part of it, if they wanted to get in touch. Um, and also like share that story of these programs we work with outside of that, because it's like this amazing network of people. Like the the whole community is able to show solidarity. Like uh, the youth, they can donate climbing gear, even if they can't do anything else. They've got old shoes and they ship it to us in Boulder or drop it off or they donate a dollar or they can be like, I, I was doing presentations and this kid in a gym hands me 10 bucks and he obviously doesn't have a lot of money. And he was like, hey, I want to donate. And it was, it was, he was probably like babysitting or something. And he was like, That's here's awesome. 10 bucks, you know, I was so touched and like, oh my God, this is amazing. And it's really made climbing more 
profound, more meaningful, and just opened all that up so that I can also not feel like I'm giving up part of myself for this project, for Climbing Without Borders or for kids or anything, but that I'm like just tapping into this amazingly like energy rich uh, cause or like humanity that like if we wanted to do like a big peak or something, it doesn't come down to just getting to the top. It's like, I'm going to share this with the kids in Mexico. They're going to be stoked. We're going to, you know, we're going to prepare for this. and It'll be really challenging. We'll be like developing our character. Maybe we'll like bring up the shirt for the, from the program so that we take a picture on the summit. And like, that's going to really like feed energy to those people that we're a part of that support us and that we want to support into this like massive just cyclone of just like positive vibes and, and support. So, I mean, if we were going to finish with anything, I just wanted to say that. I just had to say that. Thank you for letting me rant. Yeah, Mario. no, absolutely. <laughs> this is this is your mic. So I'm here to kind of talk to you and figure out what's going on with you because, you know, I'm very privileged to know you, to meet you. Um, you know, this is the, we'll talk about the, if, if I start another conversation, we're just going to go forever. So, but we definitely, <laughs> we definitely got to get back on the mic again. Uh, and hopefully it will be after we have a chance to uh, clip some bolts and plug some gear together. But, um, you know, if you wouldn't mind, uh, you know, if anybody is interested in finding you, you if you can just give a, a quick recap of like whether your social, your website or like how can people get in touch with you and find more information right. about you and what you're doing? Yeah. So I have an Instagram. It's my name with an underscore between my first and last. So Tiffany underscore Hensley. You can also find me pretty easily on Facebook, and I do respond. Um, or you can shoot me an email. It's tiff at climbingborders.org. Um, I'm on, yeah, I'm on all those channels, and I try to respond pretty quickly to people. Um, I, I kind of get swamped with projects sometimes, so I might take a little while to respond. But um, I really appreciate like people asking me, you know, I want to do this get some lost and found for my climbing gym or donate my gear or, you know, help out with graphics, uh, anything. Basically, even if they're like, I've gotten emails that are like, I don't know how to help. How can I help? And I'm like, cool. Well, just let's talk and let's see what you can do. Um, Hell yeah. 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 So hit me up on, on any of those channels. Okay. Well, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, thank you guys for listening and we'll talk to you later. I hope you enjoyed the conversation so much today, as much as I did. I love talking to Tiffany. She's been a good friend of mine for a long time. Before we get out of here, I want to thank my sponsors, Beyond Clothing. These guys have been supporting me in the very beginning of me becoming me. Like, I would not be here today if it was not for them having my back. Most importantly, they're rad people. Second, they make an amazing product, and only someone this rad and this genuine can do this. If you guys get a chance, go check out Beyond Clothing. Great gear. Use the promo code ALWAYSREADY, save a little coin. That'll help me out to produce this and to help others. If you guys have any comments, questions, please leave them. If you hate the show, let me know. If you love the show, let me know. See you later.